Hello, and welcome to the reading of The Courier for Tuesday, January 3rd, brand new year. Happy New Year to all of you. And I am Peter Welch. I am your narrator here for The Courier, and you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. Okay, let's take a look at the front page here and see what it says here in The Courier. Property tax cuts are atop or are on top of the GOP goal. From our perspective, everything's on table, Senate leader says. In Des Moines, after previously enacting multiple rounds of reductions to state income taxes, Iowa Republican lawmakers have a new target for tax cuts in 2023, property taxes. While a specific proposal has not yet surfaced, the overall tone from Republican legislature is very clear. They plan to use the majorities in both chambers of the Iowa legislature to pass legislation that will, in their view, help reduce Iowans' property taxes and send that legislation to Republican Kim Reynolds for her approval. Property tax this year will be a top priority, said Jack Whitver, the Republican Senate Majority Leader from Grimes. From our perspective, everything's on the table as far as changes. Property tax rates are set at the local level by cities and counties and school districts, among other local entities. So any changes made to the state law will impact property tax policy, not rates. Ultimately, that is a huge concern that we've heard from Iowans as we campaign, Whitaver said. Property taxes concerning a lot of people, especially with the assessment increases that have occurred over the last few months. The 2023 session of the legislature begins on the 9th of January. The governor declined to be interviewed for this legislative preview series. Property taxes are primary drivers of local government's budgets and help determine how much is spent on police, libraries, and parks, among other services. That means that officials representing the cities and the counties and the school districts uh, will have a vested interest in the conversation that takes place and legislation that is produced this year at the Iowa Capitol. Lucas, Lucas Benkin, public policy specialist for the Iowa State Association of Counties, said that county leaders welcome the conversation about property taxes, but urged caution against making changes that simply shift the tax burden from one set of Iowans to another, or that would make it difficult for local leaders to properly fund services that their communities provide. Benkin also said that the county leaders understand that many Iowans have become frustrated with property taxes. In 2019, Iowa polls by the Des Moines Register and Mediacom, 55% of the Iowans said that the property taxes were too high. County officials understand that frustration. They don't run for office to raise taxes on their friends and neighbors. They run for office to provide high-quality services for the communities to make them a nice place to live, work and play, as the saying goes, Benkin says. So the reality is that the cost of providing these services doesn't remain the same and doesn't go down. So the discussion is really how do we use the taxpayer dollars that are entrusted to the local officials to provide those services? Pat Grassley, the Republican House Speaker from New Hartford, said property tax is a difficult tax to address 
through legislation because of the many different government agencies it funds. He also said that one example of a need for reform is that after the state moved the funding of mental health services off of property taxes and to the state's general fund budget, not all local property tax rates were reduced as a result. So I think what you're going to see us looking at this year is more of how to or how can we bring down some of these levels, but at the same time, how do we make sure that there's a level of accountability so Iowa see this property tax relief, Grassley said. Benkin said that he feels any discussion of accountability should expand to the state as well, and cited the 2013 reduction in Iowa business property tax rates. When that legislation passed, lawmakers created a funding stream from the state to the local governments to help them offset revenue losses as a result of of property tax reductions. But that fund, called a backfill, had a short shelf life. In 2021, the Republican majorities passed legislation that phases it out. I think there needs to be some transparency there when the state takes action. What does that do to the taxes at the local level, Benkin asks. In general, we would want to avoid legislation or tax law changes that would be just another property tax burden shift. We want to make sure that if we're going to call it reform, let's actually do reform, not just relief for some and a shift to others. Okay, let's go over to Cedar Falls. Excuse me. Yes, Cedar Rapids, I should say. Excuse me. Cedar Rapids, disorder in the court. Iowa's court reporter shortage, frustrating, could even get worse. Not many careers can guarantee job openings at any given time, but this one, described by employees as an interesting, challenging, and fascinating, has 33 openings in Iowa, with an annual starting pay of nearly $56,000 a year. Court reporters in Iowa nationally are in high demand, but there aren't enough people pursuing the career or not graduating fast enough to combat the crisis-level shortage that Iowa courts have been experiencing for the last several years. These positions are crucial to the judicial system because they are responsible for making an accurate, verbatim, official record of trials and other court proceedings. Court reporters are the eyes and ears of the courtroom that judges, lawyers, and litigants depend on every day. State Court Administrator Bob Gass with the Iowa uh, Judiciary Branch told the Gazette that these shortages continue because there haven't been enough certified shorthand reporter graduates to replace the retirees. And many who are working now are nearing retirement, and it takes two years to finish training, and then students must pass a certification test, which they agree is not easy. Iowa Court of Appeals Judge Mary Chickley said that the fact that there's only one school in the state, Des Moines Area Community College, with a two-year real-time court reporting degree, has contributed to the problem. She thinks other states may have an advantage if they have more schools offering the program. Even if a school did open, this problem cannot be solved quickly, says Chickley of Cedar Rapids, who previously was a 6th District judge for eight years. 
The district court has a large workload. It's a hard job, and we need that live reporting and depend on it for the appellate record. Indian Hills Community College in Ottumwa and Black County College in Moline, Illinois, are working on programs but aren't up and running yet. Gast says that they may be lagging because they don't have enough faculty. The DMAC program was offered at the Newton campus, but in the fall, the program went virtual. Gast and others hoped that they would attract more students. And it did have the largest enrollment for many years with 48 students. Gast says that he can guarantee a job to those 48 if they graduate and become certified shorthand reporters. Iowa Workforce Development projected that there'll be 30 positions available annually through 2028. An industry outlook study showed that 5,000 to 5,500 court reporters across the nation will retire over the next several years, creating a high demand for the jobs. According to the National Court Reporters Association, the average national median salary is 62000 with the top 10 earnings more than $100,000 a year. Court reporters convert spoken words to text using stenography. They use keystrokes on a steno machine that has 22 keys and works when multiple keys are pressed simultaneously to spell out syllables, words, and phrases. Laura McFall, court reporter in Southeast Asia, South Iowa's 8th Judicial District said it's like chords on a piano. Words are spelled out phonetically and allow reporters to type more than 200 words a minute. It's a very unique job. And not everyone has or can do, said Sarah Hyatt, court reporter with 6th Judicial District, which includes Benton, Lynn, Iowa, Johnson, Jones, and Tama counties. We write the words phonetically, then go back and correct the the record. We also use our specialized software program to build dictionaries of common words and phrases, McFall says. It allows us to write multiple words with one stroke of the machine. All right, let's go to Ames right now. His challenges were more than academic. ISU student from CF, Cedar Falls, gets his degree despite semester of adversity. In Ames, without pressure, there are no diamonds. Yusuf Shahata a 2018 Cedar Falls High School graduate, wants people to remember the philosophical quote whenever they're faced with challenges. He graduated from Iowa State University last month, but it didn't come easily. It required persistence, grit, and consistency. Shihata followed his brothers Muhammad and Ahmed to ISU and started out pursuing computer engineering in his first semester but finished with a 1.81 grade point average. Shihata later switched to bioformatics and computational biology major. He faced his biggest challenges during his final semester. For the first two weeks of classes in late August, he had COVID-19 and was suffering from a bacterial infection. That put him behind in the midst of taking several rigorous STEM-heavy courses and led to making some sacrifices he had to forego trips from uh, to home to Cedar Falls while boosting study time and late nights in the library. I cut out everything not related to school, he said. Basically, all he was doing was eating, sleeping, and studying. He decided not to travel to Iowa City to watch the Iowa State foot, football game in September. While taking a break from the books the same day as the big game to go on a grocery run, His vehicle hydroplaned and ended up upside down into a ditch. 
And about two weeks later, he found out his close friend from Waterloo had died. Events like that make you realize how death could be right there and that there might not be a tomorrow, Shahata says. People are telling him to take a semester off. He was without a close buddy and a car. And despite lingering back pain caused by the accident, he now needed to bike everywhere. But he continued to push through adversity, channel his late friend's spirit, and kept on schedule, graduating with his bachelor's degree on the 17th of December. Shahata, too, has been serving as a research assistant with the California Academy of Sciences since the summer. He feels he's making a difference collecting and analyzing DNA sequences on a terminal and helping address the impacts of climate change and pollutants on the world's oceans and coral reefs. As his research nears publication, Shahata is back home in Cedar Falls and looking at graduate programs closer to the ocean. In pursuit of a career in marine biology and bioinformatics, he hopes that the journey leads to more field work out on the coast, possibly Florida, Oregon, or California, and new skills while scuba diving. With more than 70% of the earth being water, that's where he wants to turn his attention. Shahata feels that he could be one piece of the larger puzzle that helps save the planet, one of his driving motivations going forward in life. When you have a dream... You don't let anything stop you, he says. Other people have faced tougher struggles than me. And against all odds, you can reach a better point in life if you keep on pushing. That's what I want people younger than me to know. What an extraordinary young man he really is. Really, really remarkable. Okay, let's go to the next page. Actor Renner seriously injured while plowing in Reno, Nevada. The Avengers star Jeremy Renner was seriously injured while plowing snow in Reno, Nevada and is in critical condition. Authorities said that the actor's representative haven't said how the accident occurred, but the, the Wazho County, Nevada Sheriff's Office said late s- Sunday that Renner had to be flown by helicopter to a hospital for treatment. Renner, who is 51, is in critical condition, but stable. The actor's representative said Sunday, no further details on the extent of Renner's injuries were available. Renner was injured in an an area near Mount Rose Highway, a road which links Lake Tahoe, which straddles the Nevada-California border in South Reno. Renner owns a home in Wazoe County, which includes Reno, and told the Reno Gazette Journal in 2019 that he chose the area because Reno was the right size city for him. It has majestic scenery, and it allowed him and his family to ski frequently. Renner was the only person involved in Sunday's accident, and the sheriff's office said that in a news release that it is investigating. Renner plays Hawkeye, a sharpshooting member of the superhero Avengers squad in Marvel's sprawling movie and television universe. He is a two-time acting Oscar nominee, scoring back-to-back nods for The Hurt Locker and The Town. Renner portrayed of a bomb disposal specialist in Iraq in 2009's The Hurt Locker, helped turn him into a household name. The Avengers in 2012 cemented him as part of Marvel's grand storytelling ambitions, with his character appearing in several sequels and getting its own Disney Plus series, Hawkeye. Okay, let's turn the page. Now we're going to go to the Northeast Iowa area escapades. Here are just a few of the events and goings on worth checking out in Northeast Iowa. 
All right, let's take a look here. First, Thursday, January 5th through Saturday, the 7th of January, cheer on the Panthers to victory. McLeod Center at the University of Northern Iowa in Cedar Falls will be busy this week with men's and women's basketball teams on the court. But first, UNI wrestlers will wrangle Wyoming at 7 p.m. on Thursday. On Friday at 6 p.m., the women Panthers will take on McMurray State, and the men will be on the court Saturday at 1 p.m. in a game against Southern Illinois University Seleucus. Tickets can be purchased at the door or online at tickets at uni.edu. On Sunday, the 8th of January, it's Lego Lab at the library. Children and their families can build with Legos from 3 to 4 p.m. on Sunday at the Waterloo Public Library. And there at 415 Commercial Street, creations will be based on themes and displayed for one month at the library. Legos will be, will be provided and participants are asked not to bring their own. On Saturday, the 7th of January, acoustic guitar concert at Oster Regent. A consolidation of local stars, singers, songwriters, and guitar players will be on stage Saturday for a concert at the Oster Regent Theater, 1st and Main Streets in Cedar Falls. The music will start at 7.30 p.m. The Cedar Valley Acoustic Guitar Association showcases performances will feature six acts. Dave Malam, Carla Ruth with Deb Niemerman, Uncle Chuck Finch, Waldo Schneider and Friends, Three Blind Mice, and Bob and Jovita Long. General admission tickets are $10, available in advance at the Oster Regents box office or at the door. The show is a fundraiser for CVAGA and Cedar Falls Community Theater. CVAGA is a diverse group of acoustic guitarists and music lovers. Also on the 7th which of, of January on a Saturday, time to pound the snow. It's time for the annual Iowa Games Snowshoe Race on Saturday. This year's race will take place at the Lodge at George With State Park. To fund the Lodge, follow the park signs. The snowshoe race will start at 9 a.m. On-site registration begins at 8 a.m. It's a timed race, and on-the-site entries will be accepted for $35. If there's no snow, the event will be still be held as a trail run. In the afternoon, the Iowa Game Fat Bike Race will take place on the snow-trampled course beginning at 1 p.m. On-site entries will be accepted for $30. The route will be similar to the cycle cross races. The laps will be 5 to 10 minutes each with beginner and open experience divisions also in the offering. All right. Let's move on here. Lawmakers let court act on abortion. Any new restrictions will await decision by high court justices. In Des Moines, any moves by lawmakers to further restrict abortion in the state likely will wait on an Iowa Supreme Court decision on whether to reinstate a blocked law that would ban the procedure, except in the earliest weeks of pregnancy. Leaders and Republican-led legislatures say that they're waiting to see how the court case plays out before taking any more steps to restrict abortion in the state, including pushing ahead with an amendment to the Iowa Constitution. Republican lawmakers and anti-abortion rights advocates hope that the court will use the case to set a more permissive legal standard for considering abortion restrictions after the U.S. and Iowa Supreme Courts struck down abortion rights protection last summer. 
The Iowa Supreme Court in June reversed its 2018 decision, now saying that the Iowa Constitution does not provide a a fundamental right to an abortion. The U.S. Supreme Court soon after reversed the decades-old Roe v. Wade decision, removing the federal right to an abortion and sending the issue back to the states. But Iowa Supreme Court justices haven't said what standard they would use to view any new potential laws. Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitaver, Republican of Grimes, said in an interview, prevailing the 2023, previewing, I should say, excuse me, previewing the 2023 legislature session, which begins on the 9th of January. And so at this point, I think it's prudent for us to wait and see how the case shakes out in the Iowa Supreme Court before we continue to act, whatever says. Iowa House Speaker Pat Grassley, Republican of New Hartford, agrees. We want to be very thoughtful in our approach to this. Grassley said of House and Senate Republicans and the governor's office, we don't want to pass a bill just to pass a bill, he says. Our caucus has demonstrated for as long as I've been part of it that we are pro-life and we want to protect the unborn. But I would like to see us get some more clarity before we move forward. There's no reason to rush this thing during a two-year general assembly. Push to reinstate. An Iowa District Court judge last month declined Governor Kim Reynolds' request to reinstate a law that would effectively ban most abortions once cardiac activity is detected around the sixth week of pregnancy before many women know that they are even pregnant. The governor has appealed the case to the Iowa Supreme Court, and attorneys have filed a motion to expedite. A decision, though, could take months. As the Iowa and U.S. Supreme Courts have made clear, there is no fundamental right to an abortion, Reynolds said in a statement. The decision of the people's representatives to protect life should be honored, and I believe that the court will ultimately do so. The Iowa Supreme Court is entirely comprised of Republican appointees, and five of the seven justices were appointed by Reynolds. The measure, which supports supporters refer to as fetal heartbeat law, has been blocked by Iowa courts since 2019. Supporters of the law say that the presence of a heartbeat indicates life. However, medical experts say that a heartbeat cannot be detected until closer to 10 weeks of pregnancy. What an ultrasound detects at six weeks is not a heartbeat, but electrical pulses, according to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Now, the embryo is not yet a fetus and has only begun forming a rudimentary heart. Opponents, including Planned Parenthood, say that the law restricts a woman's ability to make a decision about her body with her doctor and would block more than 98% of the abortions performed in the state. Even the supposed exceptions... It had been for rape or incest, and the, and the life of the woman were poorly written and extremely narrow, such that they would fail to protect people in those extremely difficult circumstances, says Rita Bettis, Rita Bettis Austin, legal director for the American Civil Liberties Union of Iowa. The outcome of this case could not matter more to the health and basic rights of Iowans. Abortions remain legal in Iowa until 20 weeks of pregnancy, with exceptions after that only to save the life of the mother. The state Supreme Court this June has allowed a 24-hour waiting period previously blocked by the courts to take effect, requiring two separate appointments in order to get an abortion. 
Then there were also 3,761 abortions in Iowa in 2021, according to preliminary data from the state's Department of Public Health, a decrease of about 7% compared with 2020 when 4,058 abortions were performed in the state. The overall rate of abortions has declined in Iowa and across the nation over the past 30 years, according to state and national data. Okay, let's see what else is going on in Waterloo. Two shot outside a Waterloo strip club. Two people were shot after a late night fight outside a downtown strip club. Officers were called to Flirt's Gentleman's Club at 319 Jefferson Street just after midnight on Saturday. Waterloo police said that the shootings occurred on the street after a large fight broke out. Officials said both people had non-life-threatening injuries but were taken to the hospital. Police are still looking for a suspect. And then also in Waterloo, teen charged with robbing Waterloo convenience store. A male juvenile was arrested Monday in connection with a smash and grab robbery at a Waterloo convenience store. Police said as many as three people allegedly took part in breaking the glass front door at Three Star Mart at 127 Jefferson Street and setting off the security alarm at 2.49 a.m., while stealing at least $1,500 worth of vape and tobacco products after hours. The juveniles were reported found about a block away from, uh, away rather, with a hammer and the stolen goods, and later charged with second-degree theft, third-degree burglary, and possession of burglar's tools. Three Star Mart opened later that morning, replaced the door's broken glass with sheetrock. And in Decorah, Luther College names new provost. Bradley Chamberlain has been appointed provost of Luther College. Chamberlain, who has served as VP for Mission and Communication since 2019, was named interim provost in August. His appointment as provost follows a nationwide search led by a 22-person committee consisting of faculty, staff, cabinet members, students, and regents. He will assume the role beginning in January. Dr. Chamberlain has already provided steady leadership at Luther as part of my senior team and has been a trusted, thoughtful partner to me and to its uh, colleagues, President Jennifer Ward said in a news release. He brings an innate curiosity to the project of higher education, always looking for ways to connect the best of what our faculty and staff offer to the accomplishments of the students they mentor. In him, we will have a chief academic officer who is committed to student success and community flourishing. I look forward to continuing the work we have started together. As Provost Chamberlain will work alongside the president to provide thoughtful and creative leadership as he oversees a student-facing division that includes ag- academic affairs, student engagement, and student success. The Provost model was instituted at Luther in 2021 as a way to create an integrated student-centered approach to all academic and co-curricular services. I'm inspired by Luther's mission to prepare students for lives of meaning and purpose in service of the common good. I'm excited and grateful for the opportunity to partner with this community and a new way to support and enhance the student experience, both inside and outside of the classroom, Chamberlain said in the release. He arrived at Luther in 2001 as a member of the chemistry faculty. Chamberlain earned a bachelor's degree in chemistry from Gustavus Adolphus College, and holds a doctorate in chemistry from the University of Minnesota. 
You will also serve as interim VP for mission and communication through the current academic year. Okay, let's take a look at some of the news briefs here, uh, News Digest to be exact, uh, on the Nation and World page of the paper. Nurses and hospitals resume meetings in New York, a possible strike by thousands of New York City nurses loomed Monday, even as nurses at one hospital reached a tentative agreement hours before their contract was set to expire. The pact affecting 4,000 nurses at New York Presbyterian Hospital awaits ratification. Contract talks between nurses and seven other hospitals will resume this week to avert a strike by 12,000 other nurses as early as Monday. Their contracts expired on Tuesday. The nurses called for what they described as safe staffing levels, fair wages, no cuts to their health coverage, and health and safety protections in light of the tri-epidemic of COVID-19, RSV, and flu. They also want community benefits, such as funding programs to recruit and train nurses from within the communities that they serve. Israel Army Kills Two Palestinians Israeli forces killed two Palestinians, including a man claimed by an armed group as a member during a confrontation that erupted early Monday when troops entered a Palestinian village in the occupied West Bank Palestinian health of health officials goes on to say the two men were killed in the village of Kafir Dan near the northern city of Jenin. The Israeli military said that it entered Kafir Dan late Sunday to demolish the house of two Palestinian gunmen who killed an Israeli soldier during a firefight in September. The military said that the troops were under fire and fired back at the shooters. It was the latest bloodshed in the region that has seen Israeli-Palestinian tensions surge for months. On Monday, the Israeli rights group B. Tislam said that 2022 was the deadliest year. For Palestinians since 2004, a period of intense violence that came during a Palestinian uprising. And I'd like to remind you that you are listening to the reading of The Courier for Tuesday, the 3rd of January. And I am your narrator, Peter Welch, and you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. Yes, we do have uh, some obituary news. Let's take a look at them right now. Uh, the first one is Raphael Arnold Schmitz, uh, better known as Ray, passed at the age of 85 in uh, rural Jessup in Iowa on the 31st of December, and funeral services will be at 10.30 a.m. Thursday, January 5th at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church in Gilbertville, Iowa, with burial in St. Mary's Cemetery in Gilbertville. Visitation will begin at 3 p.m., vigil service and followed by Catholic order of Forrester Rosary at 3.30 p.m. on Wednesday, the 4th of January at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church, including at 7 p.m. Visitation will continue for an hour before services Thursday at the church. Sally Fulton uh, has passed uh, of Cedar Falls, a longtime Cedar Falls resident, died in her home in Temp, Arizona, on November 5th, 2022. There's limited uh, uh, other information about Sally. Um, let's see, let's see what else is going on here. Mark Olson has passed uh, at the age of 64 of Parkersburg, Iowa, and at Mark's request, no services will be held. Memorials may be directed to the family and will be donated to Cedar Valley Dialysis in Waterloo, Iowa. 
uh, Redmond Funeral and Cremation Services in Parkersburg Funeral Home is in charge of the arrangements. Online condolences may be left at www.redmanfuneral.com. And Maxine Kalvig has passed at the age of 91 of New Hampton, Iowa. And she passed on the 28th of December. And a mass of Christ, a mass of Christ, a Christian burial will be held at 11 a.m. on Tuesday, January 3rd, at Holy Family Parish in New Hampton. Of course, that's today with Father Jim Garnred celebrating the mass. Visitation will be held at the church from 9:30 to 11 a.m. on Tuesday. Burial will take place at St. Mary's Cemetery in New Hampton. And Laura Michaels, age 59 of Cedar Falls, passed on Saturday on the 31st of, uh, of December at home of Influenza. Memorial service is at 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, January 4th at Lock at Tower Park, 4140 Kimball Avenue in Waterloo. The family will greet friends from 3 to 5 p.m. Tuesday, January 3rd at the funeral home. Memorials should be directed to the family. Online condolences may be expressed at www.lockfuneralservices.com. Calm. Okay, let's return now to news briefs. Scaffolding collapse. Three construction workers were killed after falling about 70 feet when scaffolding collapsed at a construction site in Charlotte, North Carolina on Monday morning. Officials said that firefighters rescued two additional construction workers. SpaceX, after managing 61 launches in 2023, SpaceX has its first liftoff of 2023 planned for Tuesday morning. A Falcon 9 rocket on the Transporter 6 mission carrying 114 payloads for a variety of customers looks to blast off from Cape Canaveral Space Force Station's Space Launch Complex 40 at 9.56 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Philippines. Thousands of people in the Philippines remained in emergency shelters in the wake of a devastating Christmas flooding as the death toll climbed to 51 with 19 missing, authorities said on Monday. Helicopter crash. Two helicopters collided in an Australian tourist hotspot Monday afternoon, killing four passengers and critically injuring three others in a crash that drew emergency aid from beachgoers enjoying the water during the uh, southern summer. In Brazil, Latin American leaders converged on Brazil to meet with President Luiz Lula da Silva on his first full day on office Monday, welcoming him back to power and hoping his country assumes a great role on the international stage. Lula's predecessor, Jair Bolsonaro, rarely traveled abroad or received visiting heads of state and found himself increasingly isolated. And finally, in Syria, Israeli's military fired missiles towards the international airport of Syria's capital early on Monday, putting it out of service and killing two soldiers and wounding two others, the Syrian army said. Israel has targeted airports and ports and government-held parts of Syria in an apparent attempt to prevent armed shipments from Iran to militant groups backed by Tehran holding Lebanon's Hezbollah. I'm sure you've been probably reading or you have heard about the number of storms that California has been experiencing. Well, California is bracing for yet another storm. This is the next one coming up. New Year's Eve deluge killed one and forced evacuations in the valley. In Sacramento, California, 
Residents in California, vast Central Valley region braced for another round of powerful storms this week after flooding from a New Year's Eve deluge killed one person and forced the evacuation of people in low-lying areas, including more than 1,000 inmates at a county jail. A weather phenomenon known as an atmospheric river dumped up to five inches of rain in the Sacramento Valley and up to a foot of snow in the mountains on Saturday, according to Eric Kurth, a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. On Sunday, rising floodwaters caused local officials to order the evacuation of the Point Pleasant community near the Consumes River in South Sacramento. That included 1,075 inmates plus staff at the Rio Consumers Correctional Center. Inmates were taken to nearby jails with no timetable for their return, according to Sacramento County Sheriff's Department spokesperson Amor Gande. The rain had mostly stopped by Sunday afternoon, with another small, smaller storm forecast to hit the region on Monday night. Another powerful system is expected Wednesday and Thursday that could bring up to three and a half inches of rain in the valley and up to three feet of snow in the mountains, along with wind gusts of up to 50 miles an hour. Maine teen accused of attempted murder. He allegedly attacked police with machete near Times Square. In New York, a man accused of attacking police with a machete near New York Times Square on New, York, on New Year's Eve was arrested on charges of attempting to murder police officers, authorities said, Monday as they continued to investigate whether he was motivated by Islamic extremism. Trevor Bickford, age 19, also faces attempted assault charges from the attack that injured two officers at the edge of the high security zone where throngs of New Year's revelers were gathered at the New York Police Department said in a news release. Bickford, who lives in Wells, Maine, remained hospitalized Monday with a gunshot wound to the shoulder from a police fire during the confrontation. He was awaiting arraignment, and it wasn't immediately clear if he had a lawyer who could speak to the allegations. New York City police said that federal officials are still trying to ascertain a motive, and investigators are reviewing Bickford's online postings, which included some mentioning, or mentions, I should say, of Islamic extremist views, a law enforcement official said. The official spoke to the Associated Press on conditions of anonymity. Michael Driscoll, the assistant director in charge of the FBI's New York field office, said Sunday that the investigators believe the attacker acted alone. FBI spokespeople in New York and Boston declined to discuss the ongoing inquiry on Monday. And in other news, uh, the war in Ukraine, of course, goes on. And Kremlin strike kills 63 Russian troops who died were stationed in eastern Donsk region. In Kyiv, Ukrainian forces fired rockets at a facility in the eastern Donsk region where uh, Russian soldiers were stationed, killing 63 of them, Russia's defense ministry said on Monday, and one of the deadliest attacks on the Kremlin's forces since the war began more than 10 months ago. Ukrainians forced, uh, forces rather, fired six rockets from a HIMARS, that's H-I-M-A-R-S, launch system, and two of them were shot down, a defense ministry statement said. It did not say when the strike happened. The strike using a U.S.-supplied precision weapon that has proven critical in enabling the Ukrainian forces to hit key targets delivered a new setback for Russia, which in recent months has reeled from a Ukrainian counteroffensive. 
Dmitry Azarov, the governor of Russia's Samara region, said an unspecified number of residents of the region were among those killed and wounded by the strike on the town of Makivka. Russian military bloggers, whose information has largely been reliable during the war, said that the ammunition stored close to the facility exploded in the attack and contributed to the high number of casualties. Expressing anger at the losses, an official with the Russian-appointed administration in Russia occupied Donetsk called for the punishment of military officers who ordered a large number of troops to be stationed at the facility. The Ukrainian military appears to acknowledge that the attack Monday with the general staff confirming that Makava was hit on December 31st and saying that 10 Russians' military vehicles were destroyed or damaged. It added that the Russian personnel losses were still being clarified. In a claim that could not be independently verified, the Strategic Communications Directorate of Ukraine's Armed Forces maintained Sunday that some 400 mobilized Russian soldiers were killed in a vocational school building in Makavaka, and about 300 more were wounded. The Russian statement said that the strike occurred in the area of Makavaka and didn't mention the vocational school. Meanwhile, Russia deployed exploding drones in another nighttime attack on Ukraine, officials said on Monday, as the Kremlin signaled no let-up in its strategy of using bombardments to target the country's energy infrastructure. The barrage was the latest in a series of relentless year-end attacks, including one that killed three civilians on New Year's Eve. And over 60,000 people are paying tribute to Benedict. Some awaited outside for hours to glimpse body of the Pope Emeritus. Vatican City, Pope Emeritus Benedict's body and his head resting on a pair of crimson pillows lay in state in St. Peter's Basilia on Monday as tens of thousands queued to pay tribute to the pontiff who shook the world by retiring a decade ago. On the eve of the first of three days of viewing, Italian security officials said at least 25,000 to 30,000 people would come on Monday. By the end of the first day's viewing, some 65,000 people had passed by, the Vatican said. As daylight broke, 10 white-glove papal gentlemen, lay assistant to pontiffs and papal households, carried the body on a clothed, cloth-covered wooden stretcher after its arrival in the Basilia to its resting place in front of the main altar under Bernini's towering bronze canopy. A Swiss guard saluted as Benedict's body was brought in through a side door after it was transferred in a van from the chapel of the monastery grounds where the increasingly frail 95-year-old former pontiff died on Saturday morning. His longtime secretary, Archbishop George Gaineswain said in a handful of consecrated laywomen who served in Benedict's household followed the van by foot for a few hundred yards in a silent procession toward the Basilia. Some of the women stretched out a hand to touch the body with respect. Before the rank-and-file faithful were allowed into the Basilia, prayers were recited, and the Basilica's archpriest, Cardinal Mauro Gambetti, Sprinkled holy water over the body, and a small cloud of incense was released near the bier. Benedict's hands were clasped, a rosary around his fingers. Just after 9 a.m., the doors of the Basilia were swung open to the public, some of whom had waited for hours in the pre-dawn damp so they could pay their respects to the late pontiff who retired from the papacy in 2013. And he was the first pope to do so in 600 years. Faithful and curious, the public strode briskly up to the center aisle to pass by the buyer with its cloth draping 
after waiting in a line that by mid-morning had snaked around St. Peter's Square. Benedict's body was dressed with a, with a miter, the peaked headgear of a bishop, and a red cloak. Filippo Tuccio, age 35, said that he came from Venice on an overnight train to view Benedict's body. I wanted to pay homage to Benedict because he had a key role in my life and in my education, Tuccio says. We've got a, um, some uh, uh, cartoons. It's called The Weekend Cartoons. Um, and what we've got, um, I'll have to describe it. Um, there is a, um, a, um, a, a cartoon of Spider-Man, Superman, and Batman. And there's a picture of um, former President Donald Trump, uh, very, very fat, you know, wearing a, uh, a, like a like, kind of like a Superman suit. And Batman says, hold on to your wallets. It's con man. So I think that speaks for itself. Um, and then we also have a, uh, a picture of Biden of, on the left side of the cartoon. It says 2020 candidate Biden. And then on the right, there is President Biden. And he is looking at himself and he's saying, it's a different world on this side of the border. Um, so again, I think that's pretty self-exclamatory. So let's move on here. Okay, let's go to the entertainment page. What to watch. And let's see here what we got here for Tuesday, the 3rd of January. Sometimes When We Touch. This is a Paramount new series. This three-part docuseries explores the untold history of soft rock music, sometimes dubbed yacht rock in recent years. Uh, these are artists dominating pop music worldwide in the 70s, only to crash and burn in the 80s. Featured are all new interviews with some of the soft rock's biggest, legend, biggest legends like Air Supply, Dan Hill, whose hit Sometimes When We Touch inspired the series title, Kenny Loggins, Ray Parker Jr., Rupert Holmes, and Tony Tennille. There's also rarely seen archival interview and performance footage. Host commentary that braces the impacts of soft rock while acknowledging the cringy excess that sometimes led it astray. And a review of its continuing power over a new generation found everywhere from hip-hop samples and radio remarks to superhero soundtracks and TikTok posts. On ABC, 7 p.m., The Rookie. The list, Nathan Fillion, returns as Officer John Nolan, a middle-aged man, navigating his second shot at life by pursuing his longtime dream of being an L.A. police officer. FBI, CBS at 7 p.m. Isabel has another shot at solving one of her first cases at the Bureau when the abduction of a young woman leads the team back to a cold case from 18 years ago in the new episode, Second Life. On Fox at 7 p.m., a new episode, The Resident, and that is resuming with new episodes beginning tonight. Finding Your Roots with Henry Louis Gates Jr. This is on PBS at 7 p.m. And the season premiere, renowned scholar Harry Louis Gates Jr. returns for season nine of the series, in which he uses genealogical detective work and cutting-edge DNA analysis to guide 21 influential guests through the branches of their family trees, uncovering buried secrets and inspiring stories of long-forgotten ancestors. In the season's premiere, Gates explores the roots of actors Edward Norton and Julia Roberts, revealing their hidden connections to American history and each other. 
Will Trent on ABC at 9 p.m. This is a new series based on Karen Slaughter's 10 book Will Trent series about an Atlanta-based special agent with a highly successful clearance rate, but a challenging personality. And that's at ABC at 9 p.m. And then don't forget, catch a classic star of the month, Marion Davies. And that begins at 7 p.m. And these are some very, very old films uh, going back uh, to the 20s. The first one is called The Bride's Play. The second one is Beauty's Worth When Knighthood Was in Flower. And then Little Old New York, Beverly of Graustark, and The Red Mill. And like I said, these are uh, go way, way, way back, but they're considered classics at this point. All right, let's take a look. What else is going on here? How about today in history? Today's highlight in history is on the 3rd of January, 1990, ousted Panamanian leader Manuel Noriega surrendered to U.S. forces 10 days after taking refuge in the Vatican's diplomatic mission. On this date, 1777, General George Washington's army routed the British in the Battle of Princeton, New Jersey. 1861, more than two weeks before Georgia, Seated from the Union, the state militia seized Fort Pulaski at the order of Governor Joseph E. Brown. In 1868, the Meiji Restoration reestablished the authority of Japan's emperor and heralded the fall of the military rulers known as shoguns. In 1959, Alaska became the 49th state as President Dwight D. Eisenhower signed a proclamation. In 1961, President Dwight D. Eisenhower announced the United States was formally terminating diplomatic and, consul and consular relations with Cuba. 1967, Jack Ruby, the man who shot and killed Lee Harvey Oswald, the accused assassin of President John F. Kennedy, died in a Dallas hospital. 1977, Apple Computer was incorporated in Cupertino, California by Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, and Mike Marcula Jr. In 2002, a judge in Alabama ruled that the former KKK Bobby Frank Cherry was mentally competent to stand trial on murder charges in the 1963 Birmingham church bombing that killed four black girls. Cherry was later convicted and he served a life sentence until his death in November of 2004. In 2007, Gerald R. Ford was laid to rest on the grounds of his presidential museum in Grand Rapids, Michigan, during a ceremony that was watched by thousands of onlookers. In 2008, Illinois Senator Barack Obama won Democratic caucuses in Iowa, while Mike Huckabee won the Republican caucuses. In 2013, students from Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newton, Connecticut, reconvened at a different building in the town of Monroe about three weeks after the massacre that had claimed the lives of 21st graders and six educators. The new 113 Congress opened for business, with House Speaker John Boehner re-elected in his post despite a mini-revolt in Republican ranks. In 2020, the United States killed Iran's top general in an airstrike at Baghdad's International Airport. Okay, let's turn now to our last article here, um, today. Uh, this is the health section of the paper. It's called Taking Charge, 10 Strategies to Keep Diabetes from Standing in Your Way. Um, making a commitment to manage your diabetes, members of your 
of your diabetes care team can help you learn the basics of diabetes care and offer support along the way, but it's up to you to manage your condition. Make commitments to learn all you can about diabetes and add healthy eating and physical activity as part of your daily routine. Maintain a healthy weight, monitor your blood sugar, follow your healthcare professional's instructions, and take your medication as directed by your healthcare team and ask them for help when you need it. That was item number one. Item number two, don't smoke. Smoking increases your risk of diabetes, I should say of type 2 diabetes and the risk of various diabetes complications, including reduced blood flow in the legs and feet, worse blood sugar control, heart disease, stroke, eye disease, nerve damage, kidney disease, premature death. Avoid smoking or quit smoking if you do smoke. Number three, keep blood pressure and cholesterol under control. Like diabetes and high blood pressure can damage your blood vessels, high cholesterol is a concern too. So since the resulting damage is often worse and more rapid when you have diabetes, when these conditions team up, they can lead to a life-threatening condition. Eating a healthy reduced fat and low-salt diet, avoiding excess alcohol, and exercising regularly can go a really long way. Four, schedule regular physical and eye exams. Schedule two to four diabetes checkups a year in addition to your yearly physical and routine eye exam. During those appointments, your healthcare team will ask about your nutrition and activity level, look for any diabetes-related complications, as well as screen for other medical problems, examine your feet for any issues that may need treatment, check for signs of retinal damage and cardiac and glaucoma. Five, keep your vaccines up to date. Diabetes increases your risk of getting certain illnesses. Routine vaccinations can prevent that. Ask your healthcare team about flu vaccines, pneumonia vaccines, hepatitis B vaccines, and any other vaccines they might recommend, including a tetanus shot. Take care of your teeth. Diabetes can leave you prone to gum infections. Brush your teeth at least twice a day with a fluoride toothpaste. Floss your teeth once a day. Schedule dental exams at least twice a year. Call your dentist if your gums bleed or look red or swollen. Seven, pay attention to your feet. High blood sugar can reduce blood flow and damage the nerves in your feet. To prevent foot problems, wash your feet daily in lukewarm water. Avoid soaking your feet, as this can lead to dry skin. Dry your feet gently, especially between the toes. Moisturize your feet and ankles with lotion or petroleum jelly. And do not put oils or creams between your toes, because the extra moisture can lead to infection. Check your feet daily for calluses, blisters, sores, or redness, or swelling. Consult your healthcare team if you have a sore or other foot problem that doesn't start to heal within a few days. If you have a foot ulcer, see your doctor right away and don't go barefoot indoors or outdoors. Eight, consider a daily aspirin. If you have diabetes and other cardiovascular risks, your healthcare provider may pro- recommend taking a low dose of aspirin every day to help reduce your risk of heart attack and stroke. Ask your healthcare team whether aspirin is therapy is an appropriate uh, approach for you. Number nine, if you drink alcohol, do so responsibly. Alcohol can cause high or low blood sugar depending on how much you drink and whether you eat at the same time. If you choose to drink alcohol, do so only in moderation, which means no more than one drink a day for women and two drinks a day for men. And finally, number 10, take stress seriously. If you're stressed, it's easy to neglect your usual diabetes care routine. To manage your stress, set limits, prioritize your tasks, learn relaxation techniques, and get plenty of sleep. And above all, stay positive. Diabetes care is within your control. If you're willing to do your part, diabetes won't stand in the way of an active, healthy life.
And that does it for the reading of The Courier for January 3rd on Tuesday. Uh, And this is Pete Welch, and I am your narrator for the paper of The Courier. And you have been listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. Thank you so much for listening. Again, Happy New Year to each and every one of you. Thank you. Bye-bye now. (music) 